from my house to yours, welcome to EMS at Sea Level. Today, I am joined by Richard Barnett, who is the CMO of Supply Frame. Richard, thanks for joining me. Let's start with a real brief introduction of yourself and the Supply Frame model, and then we'll dig into some of your predictions and projections for 2013. Fantastic. I'm so uh, honored to join the conversation here, uh, Philip. I'm a big fan of the work you're doing, uh, kind of in different you know, podcasts and then you know YouTube channels and everything else. So it's great. Um, yeah, I'm the chief marketing officer and SaaS sales leader at Supply Frame. Um, Supply Frame, I've been with Supply Frame for the last three years. It's been a very exciting, uh, dynamic, crazy time to be obviously on the front lines of everything happening in the global electronics value chain. Supply Frame uh, was founded 20 years ago, um, really by C Flag, and you know, with a mission to focus on how do we improve the intelligence around you know complex bills of materials and lists of parts and components that are flowing through quotation and pricing management of distributors, and you know, the whole catalog management of that whole shift to digital that was happening at that time. Mm-hmm. Really, from that time, we just celebrated our 20th anniversary party actually last week in Pasadena. Um, but since that time, we've built a um, an incredible network that includes kind of a media and set of vertical search properties, community sites, um, and uh, services for engineers and sourcing professionals, where we have about 11 million unique uh, visitors across this broad network, over 70 different websites engaging uh, every month. Um, but we also are tracking and monitoring, you know, over 600 million, you know, parts, components, and uh, design trends, uh, you know, demand, real-time pricing and availability information with an e-commerce network or referral network that's set up, connected to about 80 distributors globally. Um, and all of that we call the design to source intelligence. It's like broad network that mm. then creates all this digital exhaust of insights that then we place into specific applications for both, you know, manufacturers and distributors to market, engage and sell to their key engineering audiences and target customers. But more importantly, I would argue is is how do we design for resilience as early as possible in the design cycle? How do we power engineers, sourcing and supply chain teams in in both EMS and downstream um, markets, manufacturers to make better decisions? And that really has been our mission, our focus. And and my primary focus since joining has been, you know, how do we scale, you know, manage that identity as as a company, but scale or go to market? And that, that became really interesting very quickly with interest from outside parties for strategic investment, which then translated into an acquisition by Siemens going on, you know, a little over a year and a half ago. And uh, now that we're part of the Siemens family, it's 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 really incredible because, you know, the Siemens penetration and focus in those key industries is, is unmatched and their solution portfolio, particularly around engineering uh, products and services is, is so, so complimentary to everything we're trying to do. So, Anyway, happy to join you, but that's a brief background on supply frame and and my role. Absolutely. And it's interesting. It's a huge, it's a huge landscape of data that you're able to bring together. And one would think with the addition of the Siemens organization, there's almost almost even more data that that you can access. Typically, a a lot, a lot of our a lot of our viewers are in the EMS industry. So talk talk to me a little bit about how you engage with EMS companies and and kind of what you feel is the ideal model that you're able to offer them. Sure. I mean, we have probably over 300 EMS customers um, engaging with our services, solutions in different ways. 
you know, primarily it was, you know, the market really kind of formulated around how do we manage, you know, more efficient, uh, intelligent sourcing events. So very mm-hmm. much on the back end, how do you manage aggregated, you know, portfolios of spend for your, you know, broad customer, uh, maybe segments or groups or even products. Uh, and then and then look at managing both the assumptions on best cost, uh, you know, to, to win new customer programs, um, you know, and manage the inbound and aggregated leverage, if there is leverage in certain mm-hmm. categories of, of aggregated spend for direct materials management. Um, but increasingly, what we've seen is both in kind of specialized or kind of tier two regional EMS to some of the global players like, you know, Jable, Flextronics and others that are key customers. Um, there, there's two trends. One is how do you improve the intelligence and an ongoing management of risk pooling with customer programs, given all the chip component shortage challenges and the mm-hmm. sort of very unequal balance again of liability, uh, you know, and managing or, or making proactive decisions to to minimize that risk. Um, you know, there's a big opportunity there. And then the other part of it, I would say, is you know, how do you uh, specialize and build maybe value-added services, which have a higher margin than just manufacturing value add. And, and some, you know, key customers, both some of the largest global players, as well as more specialized EMS players by region, including some ODMs are, you know, sort of increasing looking at what is that, what is that additional service layer and how do they do that uh, in a, you know, in, a, in either an integrated way or as a, as a strategy that'll scale. So that's really interesting seeing that, you know, innovation cycle happening right now as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You talked about the design side and um, and how that whole design for manufacturability and stuff yeah. works. The One of the terms we've been using this last year is design for disruption. So not just in terms of products, but also in terms of business models and how you do all this. And yeah. when I look at what's happened in the last year, talk to a, you know an EMS CEO or two every week, um, they found that they've had to create this open, much more communicative relationship with their customers. And I feel there's been a frustration that they that hasn't perhaps been reflected right. on the on the on the um, supply side. Do you think that's something that the old distributor model perhaps didn't lend itself to having that flexibility? And, you know, people were talking about glass factories five years ago. Now they're talking about glass pipelines. How do how do we improve that relationship between the EMS and the and the and their and their supply chain? Well, you know, it's I I just love this question because it's, uh, you know, know, we've seen it evolve over such a long period of time. and, And in some ways, one of the key observations I would say, you know, we've done research in digital maturity surveys. We, you know, we've looked at kind of, you know, all all the insights and data we have across our network. There, there is this bizarre uh, dynamic where the electronics value chain is the least digitally mature mm. of any of the peer industries downstream that generally they serve. Right. So you've got there, you know, the entire electronics value chain is literally the driving force of all digital transformation downstream in multiple industries, whether it's combining software, you know, new hardware electrification, you know, new digital services. But at every tier, you have this problem of, you know, investment, thinking about digital transformation, guiding through it. The reason why I frame it that way is it's not just isolated at one tier. You can see it kind of at, at every point of major engagement where the evolution of both business model so you know 
so how, how am I measuring joint success? Um, you know, how do we how do we invest together in joint success metrics versus an older school view of, you know, information is power. I'm going to hide information because I'm going to play a margin game where I can leverage that differential imperfect information imbalance to generate additional incremental profits because the lowest margins in the economics, you know, electronics value chain, yeah, add EMS and then distributor. And, and, you know, that game has basically been so institutionalized. It's in the behavior of everyone, both negotiating for new programs, you know, but also managing the sort of help uh, of a program or the actual just purchase sourcing event itself. Um, where, you know, EMSs are guilty of not sharing cost of bills and materials over their life cycle with full visibility of the actual MPN, not just equivalent MPN, because they would do this purchase price variance game all the time to eke out just a little bit of additional margin on top margin, of the yeah. uh, program structure. Similarly with distributors, similar kind of thing, the information, you know, about balancing inventory, you know, pricing, uh, highly sort of fragmented, sort of inaccurate pricing, oftentimes among many different customers and downstream applications, um, you know, that's that's also a common pattern, right? And we've not really made enough progress in the last 20 years. And I would say part of it is because it needs to come kind of top down. And, and really, this this the impact that we saw in the last two or three years, I, I would say, don't let any crisis go to waste. You know, this is an opportunity for transformational, you know, thinking, and, but I, I but the progress I've seen is very early, very incremental, not enough. And what I mean by that is, you know, we should be getting back to, um, you know, thinking about for long-term agreements, for visibility of allocations, to thinking about, uh, you know, flex agreements, right? Where, you know, we're going to risk share a little bit on the upside and on the downside, you know, over those program life cycles. You know, a lot of those agreement models and contractual frameworks are really mature in 97 to 2002 and then the b2b impact and then later you know sort of you know coming out of imf you know way back when and then dealing with the you know global financial recession 2007 2008 um we've 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 lost that notion right and i think mm -hmm. the other part of it is is that a lot of this reflects lack of alignment around business model transformation thinking of executive leaders in the key functions so you see it often in OEMs and manufacturers where, you know, sourcing is measured only on cost down, you know, engineering teams that do turnkey outsource, you know, design for a subsystem are measured only on on quality target to design, you know, CFOs keeping score, you know, but they're looking in the rearview mirror because they're only looking at purchase price variance or they have no visibility to the variability in the cost of an EMS program it doesn't live in their ERP environment. I mean, all these classic challenges mean you get a lot of bad behavior and pressure on how they're managing the actual program risk and success in general. Um, and similarly with, you know, distributor and direct uh, to, uh, you know, say semiconductor and, and uh, passive suppliers, you know, there, there, I think there's, a, there's an opportunity to make sure that we're sharing more accurate forecasts around gaming and double booking, uh, yeah. you know, and that rewarded with, you know, greater on-time performance, accuracy, uh, some notion of maybe you have an allocation uh, and mm -hmm. what is the premium for that? And I, and I think the business modeling is not sophisticated enough to actually start negotiating terms that are based on risk pooling yeah. or long-term agreements in the right way where there's truly a win-win opportunity in many of those accounts. A lot of default behavior, a lot of spot buy, a lot of on the, you know tactical negotiation, you know fragmentation of agreements, 
there's a huge opportunity for almost every player in the value chain. I mean, it's a long one to answer, but it's something that yeah. every day we're really passionate about. How can we help, you know, meet everyone with where they are and help them get to that next step? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I, I look at what happened in the last 12 months and there, there's a lot of it that didn't work. Um, and there's a lot of lot of frustration and a lot of a lot of pain as a result. And I think, if not now, when it is the ideal opportunity to to kind of look at those relationships. And I also think, you know, perhaps we're moving to a world where, um, you know, we're not just making profits in those little corners where where we're hiding secrets. Where we, you know, we should be able to be more open and more collaborative and create new models. When I talk to EMS guys. They are keen that their um, component distribution side of their business comes to them and sits down at the table and actually talks about the long term strategy, because that's a discussion they're having to have with their customers every day now. And their customers have done this weird thing where they've switched from um, projections to purchase orders and the purchase orders are no more knowledgeable than the projections were. So we've got an interesting situation. I wanted to just shift gears to the market because I think that plays to that quite well. Where do you see that shift in terms of the supply and demand pendulum at the moment? I spoke to a few EMS companies about their about their Q4 numbers. They've managed to shift some cash out of inventory into um, back into working capital where they could use it for other stuff, which was important to them. Yeah. Expecting to do more of that in um, Q1. Where do where do you see it from an overall position? I would say overall, I think our read is that you know definitely in many. So we we're actively monitoring both about 400 electronic subcategories, including actives and passives, raw material input cost drivers and some of those leading kind of potential price drivers around, you know, copper, cobalt, et cetera, with mm. emerging key constraints, depending on the downstream application. And then our network really spans globally. So we're seeing both net new design uh, intent and activity, you know, across, you know, 39 different countries where we have kind of enough, you know, sort of density of insight, but it's really interesting because you see geographic patterns, both that are determined to longer term demand as well as the mm-hmm. near term, you know, lead time inventory and, and kind of price changes. Um, and, you know, overall, we're seeing, uh, you know, incremental improvement in lead times, um, you know, more stabilization of pricing across almost every, you know, commodity category. We're also observing specific zones of inventory buildup and both that you know either being held definitely by distributors but also down you know further upstream by oems and for ms's as well mm-hmm. where their days on hand inventory have almost doubled um on the flip side we we you know on demand we see you know there's kind of an overreaction a bit to consumer electronics and mobile which is you know ramped down 20 to 40 percent quarter over quarter uh in in market forecasts and then that's kind of rippling back through, you know, in terms of where, you know, for in specific zones that there may have been a, a little bit of a, uh, you know, rapid adjustment from from what was being forecasted. But but the the general two year three year outlook is very very strong in almost every major downstream in market. So you know, automotive, you know, advanced hyperscale computing, data center. 5G, you know, all, all these core applications are, are still super healthy and still expanding. And the overall industry, if we look back to pre-COVID, uh, was massively out of supply demand match. So what's interesting is that we've seen overall demand rates 
almost double within two years in many of our you know demand driver you know index um and we're only we're ramping back down to 140 160 but it's not that we're going below pre-covid levels from a forecast demand intent demand overall in these markets you know is is very solid so from a supply constraint perspective we're seeing it'll continue to stabilize but we believe that there's going to be a little bit of a double dip there's there's going to be a softer than expected recovery in some key markets in the United States may be flat but you know not going to a deep recession or extended recession in Europe and EMEA um and that may shift consumer markets around a bit eventually but right now we're saying we're seeing it's more about inventory consumption so mm -hmm. if we can eat through you know two months worth of inventory that was built up in these specific areas we're actually going to see renewed signs of, of emerging supply constraints and increasing lead times come back again as a second wave, but it's going to be very fragmented. It, that's the nature of this market. So interesting is because it requires massive triangulation to actually understand, you know, what's in the six month plus horizon is are the prediction drivers, um, and it's it's not that all are following the same pattern or you know servicing the same downstream industry. So it's hmm. we optimistic things are getting better but it's we're not out of the woods and there's still a lot of complexity left in the both demand and supply drivers in the market yeah when i look at it from an ems point of view there's this there's this idea of a of a perfect scenario where demand softens a little bit we get to drive through our backlog we get to convert as much of that inventory and work and progress um into into um shipped product and 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 eventually into cash and then the market picks up when when we straighten that out. I mean, that's a bit of a, a bit of a dream scenario, which won't happen. I think one of the major concerns, though, that's out there, and you mentioned double ordering and things like that earlier, um, is how secure do we feel about the inventory we've got as an EMS company? And there are all kinds of different relationships in terms of um, uh, contractual relationships where where that's some of that's owned by perhaps the brands and the OEMs, or some of that is uh, contracted by them. Um, but there's certainly going to be some inventory there that doesn't go out of the door in shipped products and has to go out of the door in, a, in another way. How big a situation do you see that? I don't see us being in the same situation as 2000 with the tech wreck when there were billions yeah. of dollars of inventory overhang in just a small number of companies but there's there's something there to um to deal yeah. with isn't there no there there certainly is and i and like i said i think it's it's oftentimes for the ms portfolio you'll find that it's highly concentrated in the forecast accuracy or the ramp or the customer program profile um that and or risk pooling right where inventory liability uh you know terms are set uh you know more clearly and don't feel like it's a renegotiation every quarter but is actually you know there's meat on the bones there right and so um you know that risk and that impact i think is going to impact different emss very differently based on their customer portfolio and how they've managed that risk pulling you know up to this point what we have seen is one of the critical uh drivers in both ems uh tier one automotive and and a and d is a very similar pattern where those EMSs that are able to um, very quickly maintain almost a live view of current and future cost drivers, um, not just the kind of return on asset and inventory holding, but like, you know, understanding 
sort of what the cost and risk drivers are to the portfolio of their customer programs and can proactively communicate that with, with you know, 60 days to 90 day horizon visibility mm -hmm. are the ones who are able to get in front of and manage in a much better way, either, you know, shared cost reduction or shared inventory uh, liability, you know, segment segmented oftentimes, right? Like we're going to make a strategic bet specifically for this move and for that mm -hmm. portion of that that buy, you know, you're liable. Um, they're they're able to manage the sort of margin squeeze that's occurred right across the board. Those that are very disconnected from back end to front end, you know, they make a one time buy, not really tracking what the you know ongoing future risk is. They're seeing cost drivers increase. They're not, you know, measuring, you know, kind of predictively a little bit what that you know margin you know risk looks like. But it, it takes them six days to get all the way around the wheel. And then that's way too late. You know, they're informing customers for the last 30 days, we've been upside down or we need a cost recovery or we, we didn't know we were going to we, orders that we just netted and, you know, built out surprised us. And now we have 20 days extra that we didn't know we we're going to have. Like, it's all about speed and agility of communication and, um, you know, and, and sharing with more transparency. That's the key, I think, to work through this to, to actually get to either you know, greater precision around the risk, you know, the bat or, you know, how to do cost or, or risk pooling. Um, and I think, you know, so, you know, I think that there is, we see it across the board between the front, you know, largest EMSs in the world. There are some of our key partners and are highly mature in so many things that they do, but their risk assessment of new designs, for example, is oftentimes done very ad hoc. You know, it's not done in a kind of a system integrated way. Mm -hmm. So when those programs go live and they, they ramp to production, there's a constant evaluation of, you know, recommendations, right? So a lot of the things that we also think are really critical is those teams, EMSs that have strong design services, their ability to proactively identify de design changes even for production programs proactively to reduce both risk and or cost is one of the key hedge drivers you know for inventory and for program health and oftentimes they're not good at selling or describing what that scope of responsibility of the collaboration is with the design engineering you know component engineering program teams of their customers very well and that's an area that i think is you know is much more interconnected than it's ever been before it's not serial and sequential it needs to be this kind of constant shared you know agile loop of, of assessing and i think that's another area where very nimble targeted EMSs are really great in their specific domain area are really great at doing that mm. yeah and i think you touched on that nimble agility those kind of those kind of words i think when i look at what an EMS needs to be doing in 2023 agility is that is one of those key things it's not like we're you know, we're out of a few years of disruption and we're going to have a nice three or four year relaxing break. There'll be a there'll be another disruption around the corner. It feels like it's time to catch your breath, look at look at the the whole ecosystem and maybe renegotiate some of it. And but that needs to be done in an open and collaborative way. And it needs to be backed with digital tools. So those tools that give you that re real time visibility, so important to um, to how they manage their businesses. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we think that kind of, you know, investing in the right forms of analytics, outside intelligence, you mm -hmm. know, more predictive insights, and then digitizing what an active customer program 
the risk cost drivers are in a way that the mindset is how it constantly changes or you know now that we're part of Siemens you'd use the term the digital twin or the digital threat mm -hmm. of those programs you know too often we're focused on cost efficiency you know we're focused on process uh you know standardization repeatability we're we're looking at transactional data and information PO volumes shipments you know hit etc and in all of that, we're losing a digital, intelligent, outside-in view of, of where we are now and where the market's going. And that those decisions are very siloed and they're put too much pressure on a few commodity managers or you know, a few folks that are looking more strategically at the customer program. Uh, and it's and it's and and now I think we've sort of stress tested that that process and that sort of siloed approach and that over bias towards looking at your in internal data versus the market yeah. um, is just not feasible anymore. And I, I think the good news with all that is it's, it's a very exciting time to drive innovation and tie, you know, a roadmap for improvement directly back to the health of how you're supporting your go-to-market profitability, success of the customer programs um, that I think all the truth lies there. You know, that's where yeah. the opportunities are. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think your um, your value proposition is is infinitely easier to prove after the disruption we've had than, per, than perhaps it was before. And the value of digital tools and data that isn't just general market data, but is actually dashboards that are very specific to to the whole ecosystem of my own manufacturing are, are hugely valuable. Richard, Absolutely. thanks so much for your insight today. It's been really interesting. I would, you know, encourage anybody that does want to get more information on this to reach out to you on LinkedIn um, uh, and learn more about what uh, what Supply Frame can do. But in the meantime, thanks so much, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Philip.